I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Kirk will never say this, but I will. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this week's edition of Enough About Me with Kirk Minahan, brought to you by Milton's The Store for Men. On this week's show, Kirk talks to author Mike Finkel, who wrote the best-selling book, The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. He also wrote the book True Story, Murder, Memoir, Mea Culpa, that recently got turned into a movie starring Jonah Hill and James Franco. I'm going to waste no more of your time, and we'll get straight to the show right now. So I remember on the morning show when this happened, because we're, you know, we're in Massachusetts and I have a place in Maine, uh, and so is one of the other hosts. We, we talked about the story for a couple of days, the Christopher Knight story. They kind of, you know, as these stories do, this sort of the, this fun story for a day or two. And then, oh, wow, this guy is in 27 years as a hermit and, you know, was charged with a thousand crimes or whatever. Then it kind of floats away. And I have to be honest, uh, Mike, I had essentially forgotten the story until I was walking around a, a little local bookstore in my, uh, in my hometown, saw it and grabbed it right away. Read it first of all, thought it was great. Secondly, it is funny though, and I'm sure you see this all the time. These stories just kind of go away, and you forget they even exist. And you see it, and you think, "Oh, Jesus, that's right, this happened." And uh, and it is a it is a wild story. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all bombarded with so much information that who knows what our brains can hold. I, yeah, I forget. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. But um, yeah, this is the the thing that really that made this story special was this sort of legend that built up around this guy for 27 years. You know, imagine if you own a a summer home on this lake and it was like this weird thing. Your door isn't smashed in, your window isn't broken, but you're like missing your flashlights and your Stephen King novel and your your readers, your readers digest your old national geographic. Yeah. Yeah. But your computer's there and your TV's there and your jewelry's there. And so you don't know if it's like, is it a joke? Some people thought they were losing their minds. Some people blamed their kids. Some people thought it was a disgruntled neighbor. Nobody was really sure. And so after a while, this like legend started that there was, oh, ho, ho, there's a dude living in the woods, and we're going to call him the North Pond Hermit. And it went on for like decades, and it became like this sort of locally in Maine. It was like, it was like their version of the Loch Ness Monster. Well, it's, yeah, it, that, that part of it is that's But I want to go – I want to back up a little, little bit. Go forward while going back at the same time. So how does it come that you wind up in contact with Christopher Knight? Obviously, uh, given it's you, given your history, you know, uh, writing true story, you have some uh, some history, I guess, of, of 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 dealing with guys in prison. As strange as that sounds, sort of corresponding with them. I mean, did you reach out to him first? Obviously, I'm guessing you did, given his uh, given his uh, lack of you know whatever uh, social grace. I'm guessing you you found yeah. something interesting in the story and reached out to him. Yeah, so Chris Knight was arrested breaking into a summer camp, uh, stealing like you know hamburger and cheese, mm-hmm. and, and you know by by an obsessed game warden who just wanted to solve this mystery. And pretty much everything he said to the police the night he was arrested was uh, like jaw droppingly unbelievable. He said, uh, "Yeah, I lived in the woods for 27 years without ever talking to a single person." He said, uh, "I never even lit a fire." And you know how cold it is, right? There, or imagine central. Well, he said, he's, right. he said, he said, he said hello once to somebody walking by or something, right? Yeah, 
one <laughs> right, syllable. Right, he said right, hi right, one yeah. time in 27 years. He didn't even talk to himself out loud. He'd never seen the internet, made a telephone call, used a, uh, a bathroom indoors, slept in a real bed. Um, and then, and so I'm, I'm, I'm reading this, uh, I'm in my home in Montana, reading this uh, story from Central Maine uh, on the internet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm thinking this guy's got to be just completely crazy. And then the last paragraph of this little newspaper article is what kicked it in from curiosity to obsession. It said this guy stole thousands upon thousands of books. And I'm like, huh, that's not something that a crazy guy really does read a bunch of books. So I wanted to know what he would say. And so I keep scanning the news for like a month. Mm-hmm. And according to his lawyer, like 500 journalists tried to get in touch with Chris Knight. And the guy who says nothing for 27 years, he says absolutely nothing. And I can't stop thinking about him. I just want to know, why do you leave the world? What did you learn? How did you survive? A million, you know, a million questions. And so I decided to write him a letter in jail. And I wrote it the old fashioned way, you know, pen, paper, envelope, stamp. And I told him I was a journalist. And I said, uh, you know, I said, I liked camping out and I liked reading. And you were like the world champion of both those things. And, uh, you know, to my somewhat surprise, um, he wrote me back. And that's how it started. And then start sort of an odd correspondence before you actually go and visit him. And, you know, I, I, the book is interesting. You sort of go into, you know, isolationism and the history of that to some extent, while at the same time going back and forth with your, with your relationship with Knight. And it's sort of, you know, one of the themes of the book, but it seems like you never could quite crack Chris Knight. Is that, do you think that's a fair assessment? Man, I must be sort of a masochist of a journalist. I choose the guy who doesn't say a word for 27 <laughs> years right. to write a book about. I, just, I, I think I like challenges, uh, Kirk. What can I, what can I say? Um, I, you, you sort of touched on something where, like, you know, it's sort of this primal fascination. There have been a tiny percentage of people throughout history who have said, forget the world. I'm going to go live by myself. For Sometimes people do it for a month. Sometimes they do it for a decade. And we've always been fascinated by them. And if you think about some of the people who have gone off by themselves, they've profoundly changed the world. Like, you know, Jesus went to the desert for 40, for 40 days mm-hmm. by himself and then started Christianity. Uh, uh, Buddha sat under a tree in India for about the same amount of time and started, you know, Buddhism. And, and even Muhammad sat in a cave and started Islam. It's like, you know, these, these powerful things happen in solitude, and we're always fascinated. Like, you know, you ask the guru sitting by himself on the hill, what, you know, what do you have to say about us? Why are we all so crazy here on Earth? Uh, you know, in the real world. So it's this primal fascination. So I was interested in that. And uh, also, even from his first letter, even though he didn't write a lot, you could tell that this guy was hyper intelligent. And he, he turned out to be he had this sort of very dry, droll sense of humor. And he had an incredible story to tell. So it was sort of catnip to me, even though he was a difficult man, to say the least, to speak with the story itself sort of me. You know what's interesting to me, though, Mike, about Knight? Many things are, but one of them are, it's true, you list all these people, all the things they want to do. It, that was not Knight's goal at all. Like, he didn't have any big plan. He didn't want to change anything. He didn't want to do this. He just wanted to be left alone, essentially. That's it. I no? Like do you agree with that or no? Yeah, I totally agree with it. Like, the funny thing is, is, like, you know, here, when I, when I talk about, like, our world, it's like, basically, Knight lived, it was like interviewing a Martian, or the closest will ever come. He lived literally in his, like, own little world that he built in the woods by himself for close to, close to three decades, and not just any three decades. Like, you know, if you leave the world when you're 65 years old, and you stay to your, to your 95, that's, that's different than when you leave when you're 20. Right, prime of his life, yeah. Just the prime of your life, 20 to 47, that's like when everybody lives the heart of their life. Before that, you're basically a kid, and after that, you're a middle-aged person. It's like 
he was by himself. He never got advice from an elder, never spoke to anybody. So he developed his own sort of sort of world. Um, and, and of course, we in our world want to know what's the point? What were you trying to prove? And I found it actually more profound, more interesting, and of course, more frustrating that he wasn't trying to prove anything. He just, like you said, wanted to be left alone. And if we don't understand why, that's fine. He doesn't care that we doesn't we don't understand. He really was a true hermit. And talking to him sort of threw me for a loop because, you know, I'm like, oh, can you explain this? And he's like, no, I can't explain it. I just, you know, I don't really care to explain it. And I, I, I sort of like that. It, it was both frustrating and fascinating at the same time. What's what, what you do forget is, you, you know, when you read the story, you paint the picture of somebody and you have some level of sympathy for the guy, some level of natural sympathy but at the same time, you know, you then think of, you know, I have kids. I think of having that, that place, uh, as you do, think of having that place up in Maine every summer and kind of going there and you get there and your, whatever, your box of Frosted Flakes are missing, like you said, or your packet of mac and cheese are missing, or that, that Grisham book you read 15 years ago is missing. And I think of it more from the kid's perspective where it's sort of, you know, you could say a painted like, oh, this is sort of this crazy, uh, you know, ghost-like figure in this town, but it's actually kind of, I would think for a lot of those people, a really scary thing. It's an unnerving thing. I mean, what he did at its core is wrong. I mean, that's sort of indisputable. You're completely right. It's not the it's not the hamburger and the cheese and the flashlight that he stole that's the problem. It's your peace of mind and your sense of security and you can't put a price on that. I mean, people bought these cabins. They're almost they're almost all second homes. People worked. He didn't have a job. People worked to buy this cabin so they could get away from the pressures of the world for a weekend or two or three each summer. And this guy took that away from him. Um, there were people on the pond who told me that the worst thing that ever happened in their life was this guy. Like you said, there were kids who had nightmares about him. There were a lot of women especially who couldn't even spend the night in their home alone. They, how were they supposed to know he wasn't a psychopath? How were they supposed to know he didn't have a knife or a gun? It was only after he was arrested. So you're completely right. However, there were other people on the same lake with the same cabins who told me, listen, man, the second time this guy broke in and stole cheese, I, you know, I knew that this was not a big deal. He was no more trouble than the seasonal houseflies. I wasn't, wasn't worried about him at all. The woman who owned the 200 acres where this guy illegally slept for 25 years, I asked her, you know, how did you feel about this stranger living on your land, uninvited, for a quarter of a century. And she said to me, I don't care. If I'd have found him, I would have let him live there. I felt bad for him. And there were some people, was like, I'm sorry, there were some people that would leave like a, like a list. They would say, or, or leave a piece of paper and say, listen, whatever you want, just fill it out and we'll get it for you next time, right? Yeah, yeah the people of Central Maine are beautiful, have beautiful hearts. I mean, almost everyone said, listen, man, if you're hungry, ask me and I'll just give it to you. Don't break into my house. But this guy wouldn't, he wouldn't write down something on the list that's to him if you want you communicating with someone, even as simple as a shopping list, that's kind of a relationship. Some other people actually left food out for him and books. They hung it on their door like a school fundraiser, and he never touched it. He said that, you know, he was afraid that maybe someone would put some poison in it, and he couldn't trust it. He was, it's a very confounding story. Now, Chris Knight himself, I have to tell you, did not want, did, did not want to be painted as any sort of angel or hero. No, he right. No, you're right. You make that clear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I speak warmly of him because he is an unusual person, but there's just no way that everyone, you know, if you're angry at him and you dislike him, that's totally fine reaction. I wrote the book, so I, I thought, you know, you can decide whether it's a good book or a bad book, but books that I liked, 
don't tell the reader how to feel. I just laid it all out. And if you like him or you hate him, your, your, either reaction is right. It's, it's, I think that's part of what makes the story interesting is that everyone has a different reaction to him. Another thing that makes the story interesting to me is simply, well, I'll get to the, the bigger picture of that later, but uh, the idea that, you know, where he was in Maine was not far, like how far away from where his little camp was, his basically his camouflaged camp, how far away was that from people who were hiking and walking around all the time? The way I read it was not far, right? Yeah, he was not in the great north woods of Maine. He wasn't like out in the wilderness. He was basically in the rural suburbs. You know, he he... He could walk to the nearest cabin in three minutes. And of, of the hundred, there was like a hundred things that people couldn't believe. Like, how do you go 27 years without seeing a doctor? How do you not light a fire? But how do you, how do you have a campsite in the woods for 25 years in a pretty crowded place and nobody comes across and it? And never get that caught. Seems, it, it, seems, it seems impossible, right? I just need to tell you and all your listeners that this, this, like pretty much 90% of the things we're talking about, like you're just shaking your head and say, that's just not believable. And sure. I completely, I completely get that reaction. But let me just say, for personal and professional reasons, I had to make sure this story is so crazy, it couldn't afford any exaggeration, any mistakes. I hired two independent fact checkers, both his lawyer and the prosecuting attorney read my manuscript. They were privy to all the private papers. I had police officers read it. I searched his site. For, I, I went there eight times and spent the night there five times. I wanted to catch him in a lie. Like I wanted to find a charred piece of wood that showed he lit a fire. People put security cameras all over their homes. I wanted to find one picture of him taking a nap in a bed and nothing. I'm telling you, as hard as it is to believe this story is entirely true, a guy really lived by himself without speaking except for one syllable of word, without lighting a fire, without seeing the Internet for 27 years. It is a mind boggler. His woods were so thick, and he was so fanatical about being quiet and not leaving a footprint or breaking a branch that nobody found his sight. It is, a, it is hard to get your head around, but at the same time, I'm telling you, it's true. All right, we got to take a quick break. we got to talk about our sponsor, Milton's The Store for Men. And i got to talk to Chris Curtis about this because we talked about it on last episode of Enough About Me. When you guys went down to D.C., you went to Milton's before because you had to look good. We were going to the White House. The first thing Jerry said is, Curtis needs to get a new suit because I lost weight. And Bill at Milton's, we all went in, Jerry, Kirk, and myself. But Bill took care of me, got me in a great Tommy Hilfiger suit, fitted me, got it all set, flew down to D.C., and I was the star of the show. I've never felt better in a suit. I don't compliment you very often because we don't cross paths that often. Correct. But I'll admit, you look good. Got the, That suit looked good. I got a photo at the White House press briefing room. Looking like, you know, the um, Sean Spicer himself. It was great. You looked better than Sean Spicer. That's true. I think I did. Thanks to Milton's. Love the place. Bill took great care of me. They're awesome to deal with. So easy. And if you don't know, the goal of a great suit is to make you look great, which they did for Curtis, which is a miracle. Really is. Only time I've ever looked good in my life. Well, that's where Dana Katz and his team at Milton's come in. They'll help you choose the right suit with just the right fit. How long did it take you? Uh, Less than 30 minutes to get from in and out of the door. Got the suit, got it set up, then I picked it up later. It was all set, easy, ready to go. That is awesome. It could be Hugo Boss, Ted Baker, Michael Kors, in a cool new blue or gray or rich classic navy. What do you prefer? Cool I had a, blue, gray? I actually had a charcoal, and it looked awesome. Yeah, you look good. I don't know how many times we're going to say how <laughs> good you looked on this stupid episode. Kirk's going to kill us after this. <laughs> uh, and you'll get it at an unbeatable price. One suit starts at just one ninety nine ninety nine, or get two 
With Milton's buy one, get one free suit sale starting at two ninety nine. Was yours free? Mine was free. It was part of the buy one, get one free? Yes. That is an awesome deal. At Milton's, you'll be as comfortable in our stores as you'll be in our clothes. South Shore Plaza, Braintree, and Chestnut Hill Square, Chestnut Hill, Milton's, the store for men. Let's get back to the show before Kirk kills us. I've been to Maine, obviously, a lot. How do you survive 27 winters in Maine with no fire? How do you, how, how do, you do that? I, I, in fact, you know, Kirk, I spent most of my life in Montana, so I know about winter, and I do a lot of camping. You put me out in the, in the cold weather for like 45 minutes. But no, let's just say 45 seconds. The first thing I'm doing is lighting a fire. Of course. That's just, that's just crazy. So I asked him. You know, I was one of my, you know, we talked a lot of nuts and bolts. Like, how did you stop your water from freezing in animals? Mm-hmm. But how do you not freeze to death? This is what this guy did. I mean, I, I said to him, you must have just wrapped yourself in all these sleeping bags, cocooned yourself, just made yourself like this sort of human, like, you know, butterfly cocoon. And he said, that's completely wrong. This guy, I'm telling you, has an amazing mind for solving problems, for just figuring out things. You remember that story, uh, Into the Wild, with you yeah, know, uh, yeah. Chris McCandless? Alexander's super tramp, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he didn't survive one winter. Right. This guy, 27 winters and walked out strong as an ox. This is what he did, just, just for starters. He didn't know what year it was, and he had to guess at the decade, but he had these uh, old analog watches, so he knew the hour and the minute. He woke up every day in winter at 2.30 in the morning. He went to bed about 7.30 at night, so he slept about five hours. And 2.30 in the morning is about the, the, the depth of cold. And he knows that the body produces condensation. No matter how cold it is, it produces condensation. And that condensation will freeze. And starting at your fingers and toes, hypothermia will march to your heart and kill you. He got up at 2.30 in the morning when I would, and probably you, and probably everyone listening, would just grab their sleeping bags around them and huddle tight. He got out of his tent. He had this room that he carved out of this dense forest, and he paced the perimeter of his site around and around and around all night, every night, all winter, for 27 winters, and never lost so much as a toenail to frostbite. It is just forget this. Forget the story of, of solitude and, and thieving and people's reaction. It's just the survival story itself was worthy of a book. And a lot of people in that area don't believe any of that, right? I mean, you talk about that in the book. And I don't blame them. Right. A lot of locals who say that's bullshit. I, I don't blame them for saying that because it, this is, you know, listen, it took me 12 years to come up with another topic for a book because I don't take these. I take books seriously. Like, I'm busy. I got three kids. If it's not worthy story, then I'm not writing a book about it. I'll write a magazine article or a newspaper article. This is both unbelievable and true at the same time. No wonder, like, normally when I'm writing a story, whether I'm going to a war zone or science or something, the closer I come to the story, the more people sort of explain it to me and understand this was totally turned that on its head. The closer I got to North Pond, the more people said, no way, this guy's a bullshitter. He's just, just not possible. But I'm telling you, he really doesn't want publicity. He didn't even really want me to write a book. The only reason he allowed me to write a book is so no other journalist would bug him. It was sort of this defensive strategy that if he tells one person the story, he could stop everyone else. Uh, he's not looking for fame. He didn't want a dime from me. I offered him money. He said, no, he's not a liar. He And again, if I had found one tiny scrap of evidence, his entire story would have collapsed. And this police searched for him for 27 years. I, I, I spent more than a year doing fact-checking. The story holds up. It's just 
so hard to get your head around. It's just, it, I mean, the, the old cliche, the truth is stranger than fiction, really applies in this case. I've, I've never found a more bizarre story in all my years. You know what makes a story even more layered, though, in a way, obviously you know this, is number one, the story is hard to believe, and number two, it's being written by you, who is somewhat famous for you know getting in trouble, obviously, with New York Times Magazine, being fired for making a composite character in that story. So you sort of have a journalist, and you've written about, obviously, in true story, you have a journalist who you have some questions about and in a story we have some questions about, it almost adds another layer of mystery to the whole thing. Is that, do you understand where I'm coming from with that? Yeah, listen, Kirk, I am 100% human. I make mistakes, man. And I made a huge mistake, if, you, if your listeners don't know. Um, this is about 17 years ago now, but I was working for the New York Times Magazine. And to make a story, whatever, more snappy and better to read, I made what's called a composite character. Right, I took I... a bunch of interviews, right. and I combined them into one. And that's against the rules of journalism, at least not without saying at the top, hey, this is a composite character. I lied to my editor. I didn't tell her. And I was caught, and I was fired, and I deserved to be fired. And as I mentioned to you before, maybe like 500 journalists tried to get in touch with Knight. But I'm telling you, the fact that I messed up and well, you know, have a black mark on my record, I was banned from writing for, for some publications for years. You know, I had to claw back into the business. Like, uh, some journalists kind of can come at you like holier than thou, and I'm telling you, when I approach somebody, or maybe it's the reason I'm interested in criminals, I'm saying, listen, man, I have messed up before. I am human. I am no better than anyone else. I, you know, I'm trying to come back. And this guy who wanted to survive in the woods, and he also had to be reduced to stealing. He's made some mistakes. In a weird way, the fact that I have a black mark on my record and have had some failures in my past sort of makes people like like Chris Knight weird people, criminals. Uh, it makes them almost more comfortable talking to me, I think. And, and so I'm not, I'm not making any excuses. I, you know, I deserve to be fired, but uh, I'm trying to do the best I can uh, on the back end. And it's sort of, in a weird way, has made me a better writer and a better journalist. So you, that's the only time you ever did something like that, and that's the one time you got caught. Was the only time you, you did something like that in your career? Yeah. So you know, this is a funny thing. When you're, this, sometimes I'm thinking of Trump and things like that. When you're innocent of something. Mm-hmm. And someone says, I'm going to investigate. You know what your reaction is? Great. Please investigate. Just think about that. Like if you're innocent and someone says, we want to have an investigation, you're like, bring it on. So when I was fired from the New York Times Magazine for doing a composite character, I knew what I had done. I was like, yeah, that was the only time I had done that. It was a creative thing. I just uh, I didn't want like 20 people with weird names being quoted. And, your, you know, poor readers eyes would glaze over and they would just turn the page. I decided I'll just do one person and be easier. But I knew it was the only time. And when The New York Times said, oh, we doubt that this, you know, it's like a shoplifter saying, oh, that was the first time, you know, no one believes that. They're like, we're going to investigate all of your articles. And I was like, thank God, please. And they sent reporters all over the world to re-report my stories. And then they wrote another story about me saying, listen, man, they they found like a numerical error and a spelling error, of course, real, you know, regular human stuff. But Mm -hmm. they cleared me. The New York Times fired me and cleared me. I, I knew that that was the only time I did it. And it was proof, you know, they... They they, uh, they investigated me, and I was happy that they did. Well, you think you know you just think so, of you think of glass, and you think of Blair, you know, where yeah, they where course, all all of a sudden of you know you open up you, the the, the band aid, and the bullet wound comes flying out, where it's just it never ends, you know. Yeah, of course, that's where I, I'm human. That's, I'm exactly like that. You you know, you get caught once, you're probably serial. And I knew that in my case, I didn't, which is why I was happy to have them investigate because just like they just like they investigated Stephen Glass and they investigated Blair, when you make these mistakes and people are looking for it, it's pretty easy to unearth them. And the Times and other publications didn't find any because there wasn't any other. It, was a, it wasn't this – I didn't have in my mind that I was 
ooh, I'm going to cheat. I was like, the, the, the cheating was to make the story more readable, not to like be lazy. Right. I, I still interviewed all these people. And so it, it's sort of, again, you know, when you mentioned at the beginning of, the, of this podcast how, you know, you forget stories, they just flash through your mind. So, yeah, you know, it pains me when I get lumped in with other people, but uh, I'm so grateful for the world, the United States, you know, journalism to give me a second chance. And uh, I knew I hadn't made any other mistakes. And certainly every article I write now is so thoroughly fact-checked that in a weird way, I feel like I'm the most trustworthy journalist you'll talk to because if I ever got caught again, there's just no coming back. It's, you know, right to the gallows. Um, and so I feel like if you're going to trust anyone, you, you should trust me. I can't afford anything else. And I'm so cautious and vigilant. And, you know, if I was 99% sure of something in this book, I'd cut it out. That's just not good enough. Well, um, that's well, why the book's only 191 pages long. It's really short. Right. I just wanted to put what I knew to be true and only the best stuff. Hey, to your credit, it's one of these books, Stranger in the Woods, one of these books I read in like a sitting and a half. You, you, I mean, you get you get going Thanks, on man. it. You cannot stop reading. That's what I would say. And I liked, and I really like True Story a lot. I'm curious as somebody who has you know, been portrayed on, in film. So I really like the book True Story. Uh, obviously, you, you sold the, the, the book rights. So I don't know how much you can talk about this in movie rights. I was not a huge fan of the film adaptation. I thought the book, as usual, is, was much better than the movie. I'd be curious, A, if you could talk about it, B, what you thought of the movie and what the whole experience is like. Yeah, so, you know, True Story is basically about me getting fired by the New York Times and also for people who don't know, <laughs> again, this is all true, you might not believe it, at the very same time that I basically lost my name as a journalist, you know, the most valuable thing a journalist has is his name and reputation, and I got caught cheating and lost it. At the very same time, I'm talking like to the day, I found out that this guy on the 10 most wanted list who was wanted for killing four people, and not just any four people, his wife and his three kids, like true psychopath material, was running around Mexico telling everyone that his name was my name, Mike Finkel, and that he was a writer for the New York Times. Like, literally, like, I basically had a murderer impersonating me. Right. And so those two weird stories, fired by the New York Times and murder impersonating me, I, I sort of knit into this story, and I called it true story for both literal reasons, the story's true, and also a little tongue-in-cheek in that I got fired for not mm -hmm. writing a true story and that the main character, Chris Longo, is a psychopathic uh, uh, a liar, uh, he couldn't tell the truth if it, if, if, it, if it bit him in the nose. Um, and, uh, you know, they made it into a movie. And it, God, it is such a surreal experience because the book is very personal to me. And also, like, I have a wife and three kids. And this guy murdered his wife and three kids. Like, I wrote about a guy that is an asshole times a million. Like, I wrote about a psychopath. And I got really, like, kind of into his head. And it freaked the hell out of me like i have i will never recover from that book and i will never write a book about a murderer again because it was so scary to me and so to see a movie I, I have to like watch it between my fingers like just imagine like my hands on my just watching it. it's like so i have no idea <laughs> like i think it's good i don't know people have said that some people like it some people don't but it's so um uncomfortable for me to watch you know uh, jonah hill played me and he's a great actor and, and also by the way a good guy i get to meet him he's just like a really good guy so i like him and uh james franco played the murderer and i think james franco is a good actor at times too and also an interesting guy so good good talent there but um yeah felicity jones is your wife right is that right and felicity jones who just was the star of the new star wars film right. played my wife jill and also a great actor so good stuff there but uh I think I'm almost like the worst guy to ask about that movie because it's so surreal for me to see it. And I can't, I have no distance from it, as you can imagine, you know, Kirk, I'm sure you can imagine. It's just like, I've only like watched it all the way through maybe three times. And I was like, 
in a pool of sweat all three times is so like squirmy. <laughs> what is your? Do you have any? So the book. I'm, I'm not going to give away the end of the book. I would just say that it's there's certainly a uh, a line drawn in the sand between you and Knight when the book ends. I'm curious since the book's been published and sent out and written. If you had any contact at all with Christopher Knight, where is he like today as you and I are talking? Okay, so Chris Knight gave me the most valuable thing he owned in the world, which was his incredible story. He gave it to me. Right. He didn't want, as I mentioned, any money at all. As I as I sort of hinted, like he's a hyper intelligent guy, like one of the one of the main reasons he left the world behind, frankly, is that he was just smarter than almost all of us. Although people. it gets he was certainly uh, smarter than. Although, uh, sorry, I, I just want to interrupt because I was going to ask that before, and we'll, we'll get yeah. to the question I just asked you in a second. The reasons for him leaving are strange, though. I mean, he goes on this road trip down south, turns around, drives back, and decides to pick a random spot he doesn't really know much about and disappears. There's no real actual thing that you look at and say, okay, this happened. Somebody died. He was accused of this. You know, somebody did this to him. His wife, you know, was fucking somebody. He walked in. None of that actual stuff happened. and None of that cliche stuff. He just kind of said, screw it. Of course. I mean, one of the main questions is, like, why leave the world behind? Man, you're, he was a 20-year-old kid. He was smart. He had a decent job installing a, a automobile and home alarm systems. Uh, a jo- the one job came in quite handy uh, later on when he was, you know, de-installing them um, or disbanding them, uh, deactivating them. Yeah, you know why? I said to him, "No, you want this like, you want this specific reason? Oh, I committed a murder. I, uh, you know, my I was abused as a child. I was confused about my sexuality. Anything, but if you think about it, and he told me that none of those things were true. If you think about it, anything specific like that, you'll kind of get over it after a while. You don't gonna last. You're not gonna last 27 years. You'll get. You'll be like, you know what? I'm not feeling that guilty anymore. I'm gonna go take a warm shower. So the reason he left is both kind of. Um, it's it's kind of an underwhelming, but also really profound. He said to me that for his entire life, as long as he could remember, he wasn't very comfortable amongst other people. And he felt this like tug. He called it like this gravitational tug to leave the world. And if you read um, other hermits books, and a lot of hermits have written about themselves, they almost all say a similar thing, um, that they just felt something in their soul. And at the age of 20, which is very young for a hermit, he just did this radical thing. And, you know, I remember being 20. I did a whole bunch of stupid stuff unprepared. This guy, like, literally ditched his car in the woods, threw the keys in the center console. He didn't have enough food. He didn't have enough clothing. He had, like, a little shitty tent, and he just walked into the woods and didn't come out for – he wasn't going to come out for his whole life. He didn't come out for 27 years. Right. For, like, all, all we know that car, that, for all we know, that car is still there somewhere, right? I guarantee you it's still there. Yeah, I mean, uh, Central Maine, there's a couple of junked cars around, but I'm telling I, I wanted to find it, but his instructions were so opaque that it would it's like needle in a haystack. But I'm guaranteeing you, if we all looked around the shores of Moosehead Lake um, in, in Central Maine, we would find an old Dodge Brat with a set of keys somewhere in the, in the middle there, all overgrown by the forest. It's still there. Did you ever feel like you were his? It, it's it's the back and forth is is so interesting. Like he, like I said, I felt like he never really let you in a little bit once in a while, I guess. But did you ever feel like you were friends with this guy? Yeah, you know, sometimes journalists like chess game, like you know, we're sort of like or or like before boxers actually start to punch each other, they sort of are like circling each other and mm-hmm. feeling each other out. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm telling you, I was one move behind in the chess game and one step behind in the boxing. It was just like this guy was so smart that there was no like any like tricks that you can have for journalism. Like, you know, you know, just like 
cajoling people into saying this, flattering them with their ego, or just like sort of assuming something that may or may not be true. All those little tricks weren't working with this guy. He was not my friend. And I kind of respected that. Because if he was all buddy-buddy with me and suddenly spoke, uh, you know, endlessly, then he wouldn't really be the hermit he was. He never really even liked me, uh, to tell you the truth. We had a weird connection. And there, especially, you know, you're not giving away the ending, but especially at the end, we have sort of a profound meeting. Right. But no, we never became friends. And I, like I said, I sort of, I sort of respected the fact that he never even pretended to like me. I, I, it was very real. Like there was none of that BS or buddy, buddy, journalist subject. He knew what the deal was. I took notes in front of him. I told him from my first letter that I wanted to write about him. And he also knew exactly how much he was telling me. And he did hold back some things. And, you know, this is all you're going to hear from one of the most extraordinary people. I mean, that have, basically that have ever lived. It's, it's an incredible story. And, you know, did I want him to tell more? Yeah. But on the other hand, if he told more, then he wouldn't be this guy who could live for 27 years without talking. So that sort of weird, like, frustration, satisfaction dance uh, happened for me, and it probably will happen for some of the readers to be like, oh, I wish I knew more, but, ah, oh, damn, I'm so lucky to know this much. It's and so strange. Sort of- it's so odd. It's like, you know, in a way, he was able, when you guys were done, your conversations, whatever, it always seemed like he was able to say, okay, yeah, if I never see you again, I don't care. But you became, not obsessed and strong, but you became you know, really, really, really into it, going back and forth, visiting, you know, almost too much. Yeah, I mean, if there's any criticisms that people have lobbied up the book, it's that, you know, God, man, you just didn't leave this guy alone. And and, and that is sort of true. Yeah, there is a little bit of that. Um, I, I admit it. And, you, you know, you pulled back from the word obsessed, but really I do. Like he said to me, one of his quotes were, you know, you get a bee in your bonnet, Mike, and you just, you know, can't leave it alone. And there is some truth to that. And, I, you know, I am human. I'm not, I'm not a pit bull, but I, when, I, when, when someone's telling me just a story that's just so amazing, um, I am riveted. I wanted to hear more. Now, the only thing I can say in my defense uh, is that, number one, I started by writing him letters, and hundreds of people literally wrote him letters. He never had to write me back, and he did. And then every single time I visited him, him in jail, I had to check in, and he had to agree. And he always agreed. And then, even more profoundly, and not giving too much away, we have this one final meeting after he's released from jail, face-to-face in his backyard in Maine. And he says to me, Mike, he says, Mike, you're my Boswell. You're, you know, in a reference to the guy who wrote Life of Samuel Johnson, one of the more famous biographies in all of literature. He said, Mike, you are my biographer. He gave me that appointment, that gift. And approved of it. And, and then when he was done talking to me, he said, I, you know, I really don't want to talk to you again. And I, of course I wanted to talk to him again. But at, at that point, when he said, I've done enough and you are my biographer, uh, then I've left him alone and haven't contacted him since. I mean, so, it, yeah. When you get so tied into a subject like that, I'm just thinking how I would think about it. I mean, it must be tough even now, a couple of years later, when you're just wherever you are, whether you're in, in France or you're back in Montana, or you're traveling somewhere, not to, not to have an impulse of, all right, let's try and find out what this guy's doing, where he is. It would be tough to let go, oh, I would think. Of, of course. I mean, I've tried to keep tabs by, like, you know, speaking to people in the court system, but, you know, I did a book tour up in Maine, and I was right near where his uh, house is and right near where he's living, and there was, like, you know, my left arm was tugging my steering wheel to go over there. My right arm was, like, the whole devil and angel thing, and I right. did not bother him, but... 
I mean, are you asking me, do I want to hear from him? Yeah, the man is amazing. Like, when you get a letter from him, it's like weird and funny and sad and strange and all those like, I mean, if you're a journalist and you like the English language, this guy has a kind of a beautiful way of using it, unique way. And man, I'm, I'm a collector of stories. And this one is a, this one's a mind blower. And uh, yeah, I, I, do I, do I feel that there's more issues when, when you, when you bother someone? Heck yes, I'm human. Uh, I felt like I stayed just on the right line of it, but yeah, I was a little bit pushy and I, I do feel a little bit bad about it. But w- when Chris Knight said that's enough, then I did stop, but I certainly pushed him as, as far as he was willing to go. So where is he today? As you and I talk, I mean, I, I don't mean right now, but what, what is he doing? What's, what's going on? Yeah. I'm happy to, you know, he's, he's in his fifties now. He's not as young as he once was. You know, I know that in his heart, he would love to escape into the woods again, but he doesn't have any money. And he only spent, this is not giving too much away, but he only spent seven months in jail. And even the prosecuting attorney was like, this guy, I mean, they could have given him a, they could have given him a life sentence. He's like, this guy would just not, does not deserve to be in jail. But they gave him a harsh probation that if he breaks any laws again, he can spend as much as seven years in the state penitentiary. He hasn't, he has observed his probation to the letter. He's living a quiet, anonymous life in central Maine. He has a job, but he doesn't work with other people. He takes apart uh, engines for scrap metal. Um, and he's, you know, he's keeping on. He's probably, you know, you know, one of the things that I find the most fascinating about this story, and we've, you know, there's probably like a dozen things, but the most fascinating thing is when you ask him, you know, what was it like to just live there in the woods, that brutal winter with no fire, the, the loneliness that this, he said to me, he was never lonely. He was never bored, and in fact, he loved his life in the woods. He was so content. He expressed more satisfaction with his life than most people out here in the real world ever express about their life. He was truly happy. He was never going to come out of the woods if he wasn't uh, caught by this um, game warden that was obsessed with catching him. He was never going to tell anybody his story. There was never going to be a book. He really was living a beautiful life. And now it's less so, but he's, uh, you know, the, the ending is, let's say, semi-melancholy. Like, he'll be okay. He's a survivor, but I know that he would wishes he could get back into the woods. So he would just die, he eventually, would he just die in the woods? That was, his, that was his hope. He was going, yeah, I mean, it's like, again, how many things can I, how many times can I say it's hard to get your head around? But it's hard to get your head around. Right. No, I understand. <laughs> but he, he was, was going to, going to live his whole life there. And yeah, he was like, he had this very, I don't know if you want to call it Zen or Buddhist or just like he would like wasn't going to see a doctor if he got sick. It was just going to be what it was going to be. Well, that's what I was going to ask, Mike. Like he right. never had like a you know how it is. He never had like a severe toothache or he never had a a, a real injury. He never broke an ankle or he out there walking I around. Know. He never broke an arm or broke a wrist or none of that stuff. He took a couple. I mean, I, I mean, he ate a lot of he, the guy. He ate a shitload of sweets. I know. So first of all. <laughs> No sicknesses are hard to believe. However, I guess fat, you know how you get sick. Getting a cold, you're not from right. Each other. No, I mean, I have two kids. You I know, know exactly. Right, right. I got three, man. I know right. totally. Right. Plus another one. Right. You know, yeah. You get sick from, we get sick from each other almost exclusively. Like you can still get something like cancer or diabetes. Of course. Um, without other people. But he never got sick. And that, I talked to doctors and they're like, yeah, of course. I'm like, but he touched doorknobs and went into houses. And they're like, you know, germs don't live on inanimate objects for very long. The fact that he didn't encounter other people was so that, that's the reason he never got sick. No germs, no sickness. Now, he did take a few falls 
um, on the ice. But he not only did he have an amazing mind. I mean, listen, for 27 years, you got to be both lucky and skillful. He not only had a great mind, but he had a really like athletic athleticism about him. He was an agile guy, and so he was able to move through the woods. He said his worst injury was he fell hit his arm hard on the ice and couldn't pick up a cup for about a month until it healed. So maybe he cracked the bone or something. That was it. And you mentioned he did eat a lot of sugar. The worst uh, physical thing that he had was that his teeth were going bad. I think he only had one tooth removed after he was out. He saw a dentist. But so astonishing physical ability to survive, uh, you know, so a good mind, uh, agile body, and just a really extraordinary immune system. Uh, all combined together to make this, a, you know, a truly extraordinary story. Well, the book is A Stranger in the Woods. I cannot, as I said, recommend it enough. I read it, like I said, in a day and a half. It's great. If you're on Amazon, obviously, or any bookstore around, it is still there. The author is uh, Mike Finkel, Stranger in the Woods. I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed this, Mike. Uh, go back and enjoy your rest of your uh, vacation in France, okay? Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure to talk to you and to be able to speak at length rather than doing like a two-minute drive time thing. So it's been really a pleasure. Anytime. And, you know, 16 years from now when you write your next book, we can we can do this again. Does that sound good? Uh, book me. Book All me right. for it. All right. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again for listening to the Enough About Me podcast. Actually, you know what? I'm really not thankful at all. You should be thanking me. You get this shit every week, these great podcasts, totally free. Do me a favor. Would you go to iTunes, download it, go to Stitcher, do the same, and leave a rating, leave a review. That's where you can help me out. This podcast is going to be number one again, I guarantee it, and you're going to help me along with the process. So for that, I guess at the end, maybe I will thank you. There's a lot of thank yous going back and forth. Here's the point. Fuck you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.